From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Does the next generation have the right to a healthy climate? A new documentary with roots in Colorado tells the David and Goliath story of young Americans taking on the U.S. government over climate change. Then, since the start of the pandemic, 90 newsrooms have shut down. 65 million Americans now live in what are considered news deserts with no local news source. Wherever there are news deserts, taxes tend to rise, government spending rises, corruption increases, even crime increases. How the struggles and perseverance of a small-town, family-owned newspaper highlight a much bigger issue about accountability and community connection. People are paying attention, and they are realizing that freedom isn't free, and that if you want the truth, there's a cost. I'd like to think down deep we're honest people searching for the truth. I donated my car. I donated my car. I donated my car. I donated my car to CPR. I needed a new transmission and a lot of other work. This was a great way to make a large gift. It was a car that we had loved. It was time for it to go on to its next life. It was time for the car to get off the street anyway. I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. And it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call and they came and picked it up. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel on the Western Slope. The longest-running women's film festival in the country is underway in Colorado Springs. The Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival has promoted films by and about women for more than 30 years. Here's festival director Linda Broker. We never go into the festival with a preconceived theme in mind, but It always sort of ends up in hindsight when we look at the collection of films, like, oh, you know, there are some themes this year that are unique. And and I would say this year we have more films that focus on music, and we have a lot of films that focus on youth, youth as advocates, and then just the challenges that youth are also facing. One of those films about youth is a David and Goliath story about 21 young Americans suing the U.S. government over climate change. The documentary Youth v. Gov was produced by Olivia Oneman of Boulder. Olivia, welcome to the program. Hi, Nathan. It's a pleasure to be here. This court case, Juliana versus the United States, argues that young people have a, quote, constitutional right to a healthy climate. And you've tackled climate change before in films like The Cove and Racing Extinction. What about this story appealed to you? I think this story really appealed to me because from the outset, it's looking at a solution to the climate crisis. You have these 21 really inspiring and brave plaintiffs who are taking um, their rights to the nation's highest courts um, and asking for relief from the climate crisis. And what is that solution? What is that relief? So the original complaint, which was, um, or the original filing in um, 2016, they are seeking remedy from the courts for a climate recovery plan. Um, Mm. Since 
the courts have ruled in the favor of the plaintiffs, um, saying that, yes, they've uh, experienced harm, and yes, that harm is caused by the um, defendants, which is the United States government, but that the courts do not have the power to provide the remedy of a climate recovery plan. So the plaintiffs in June went back to the district court and asked to amend their complaint um, to focus on declaratory judgment, where they're asking the courts to recognize that the nation's fossil fuel-based energy system is unconstitutional. So at the moment, they are waiting for a judgment from um, the the district court um, to uh, allow them to amend that complaint so that the case can be on track to go back to trial. I'm assuming that making a film about a court case, you're, you're speaking, you know, about all of these things and these challenges and back and forth. I, I bet there's some pretty big challenges when making a film about such a complex case. What are some of those biggest challenges that you see? I think from a producing and directing standpoint, um, uh, with a documentary like this, you don't ever know what's going to happen. Um, so you're not sure how long the timeline of production is going to be. Um, you're you're trying to follow several things. Both we have 21 characters in the film plus the um, legal team. So that's a lot of subjects to um, to follow and follow their stories. Uh, you also have some natural um, disaster events that are happening to with that the plaintiffs are reacting to, which are hurricanes and wildfires and floods and droughts. You don't know when those sort of climate enhanced events are going to happen and how you're going to get film crews to cover those. Um, And then the challenges of the court case itself. Um, It's a long waiting game in the courts. Uh, You go to hearings and you film hearings and then you wait for several months until the judgments um, and the rulings are are offered. Um, So it's very tricky to decide what your end point is, what pieces of the story really important to follow. Um, And we decided with this film to um, finish the film and finish shooting after the Ninth Circuit Court ruled um, against the plaintiffs in 2020. And and you had 21 subjects, like you mentioned, who were growing up during the course of this film. C- can mm-hmm. you tell me maybe about one or two of them and, and what life events? You said there were natural disasters that they experienced. What else did you have to keep up with? Because this was a long process, right? It was, it was. Um, the director, Christy Cooper, started following this story in 2016, and we finished the film at the end of 2020. Um, and the case is still going on and alive in the courts now. Um, so a couple of the plaintiffs, they're all just great young people. Um, Levi Dreheim is the youngest plaintiff. He lives in um, Florida. And during the course of the filming, he's, he joined the case when he was eight and he's now 13. Mm. Um, twice during the course of production, he had to evacuate his home on a barrier island in Florida because of a heart to, because of two hurricanes. Um, and Levi's just a energetic, fun, committed um, environmentalist. He's a really great kid. Um, Another um, plaintiff, Jacob um, Leibel from um, Oregon, he and his family started a farm about 18 years ago, and they are now threatened by 
seasonal wildfires. Um, Jacob is a farmer himself, um, and he's in his early 20s at this stage. Um, he And then another plaintiff, um, uh, Jaden, who's from Louisiana, um, she joined the case also. She's now in, um, I think she's 18 years old um, and has moved from Louisiana to New Mexico. Part of the reason because of the threats to where they lived with constant hurricanes and, and, and flood um, and flooding. So yeah. those are just three and, and- of a really amazing collection of young people who are part of this case. And these these young people are all across the country and they're experiencing things at different times. How did you decide where to go and what to film and how to film it? Because I know there was cell phone footage used in the film at times instead of cameras. I'm assuming because it was in the moment, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, you can't be everywhere. Um, and it's um, it's tricky to it's tricky to respond to um, events that are happening in the moment. So one of the um, things that we used and um, the director, Christy, had um, asked the plaintiffs to do was to film themselves in some cases. So with um, Levi evacuating from a couple of hurricanes, we could be there for one of them when he was returning home. But at the time, it's so urgent and the family's getting to safety that we asked his family to just take some home video footage with their um, with their smartphones. Um, and because we use that tool um, several times in the film, it kind of matches stylistically with the telling of the documentary. The other, uh, the other time we um, used it, that method was when um, a uh, a ruling from the courts would come down and you want the reactions of as many plaintiffs as you can get. And so we asked plaintiffs to film themselves as they heard what the court's ruling was and to send their sort of immediate in the moment reactions to us. Uh, and that was a way that we could kind of cover that story without having to be in 21 households or, you know, with the legal right. team <laughs> right at those moments. And, and of course, like you mentioned, there there are no guarantees of a happy ending for these these young people. How have they handled the ups and downs? And capturing that on film must have been stirring for you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, witnessing these young people carry the, the the weight and the responsibility of being part of a federal constitutional lawsuit. Um, was was really remarkable um and there are they do have ups and downs you know when you when you have a win there's excitement you can feel that the the case is on track to going to trial what's interesting about this case it has never gone to trial in the five years that it Mm -hmm. since it's been filed there have just been um sort of court legal proceedings that have been filed and appealed and amended and um argued, um, but it's never gone to trial yet. So riding that wave as you're also riding the wave of coming of age as a teenager and a young adult, um, it's it's heavy for these kids. Um, and I think yeah. they have all gone through, you know, times of feeling really um, excited and focused and other times where they're feeling quite down about how slow the court system is and how frustrating it is. Um, and you see that in the film. We capture that and we capture those moments with these plaintiffs. Thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. 
Olivia Anoman is the producer of Youth v. Gov, one of 40 film festivals available online starting Thursday as part of the virtual Rocky Mountain Women's Film Festival. When we come back, how the struggles and perseverance of one small town newspaper highlights a much bigger issue about the importance of local news. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You listen to CPR News to hear voices from all over Colorado and the world. And we really want to hear your voice. This is Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. CPR's new app gives you an easy way to help us tell the stories of our time. Download or update your CPR app. In the menu, tap Tell CPR to send a voice message. And you might just hear yourself on the air. The new CPR app, available in the App Store or Google Play. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. What do we lose when we lose local news? That's the question ultimately posed by the documentary Storm Lake about the challenges of a newspaper in a small Iowa town. You can change the world through journalism. The reporter is the cornerstone in a functioning democracy. And without strong local journalism, the fabric of the place becomes frayed. The prospect of the newspaper not being around terrifies me. So if we do the right things here, we'll be all right. So let's get that story. Storm Lake follows Pulitzer Prize winning editor Art Cullen and his work with his family to keep their newspaper, the Storm Lake Times, alive. Jerry Reishis is one of the documentary's directors. They joined CPR arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo for a panel discussion in front of an audience at the recent Denver Film Festival. One in every four newspapers in the, about the last 15 years have shuttered. 65 million Americans now live in news deserts, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Uh, circulation dropped 6% from 2019 to 2020. That was according to Forbes. According to Pointer, 90 newsrooms have shut down since the start of the pandemic in March 2020, and 80% of those were weeklies, mostly in small and rural communities. Art, I want to start with you. Is there any good news <laughs> for the future of news? <laughs> um, hey, uh, before you start, um, I would also say that besides the closing of some of these newspapers, we've also had a, a large number of merges. So it's not like, you know, there's 90, 90 new news deserts. There's actually even more. Sorry, I'm just piling on the bad yeah. news to give you a, a chance to bring us back. And a little more bad news to localize it. Uh, about six Iowa county seat weeklies uh, closed during the pandemic, including one of the oldest newspapers in Iowa, Centerville Daily Iowegian. And what a loss of a title that is, the Iowegian. And regarding community journalism, yes, it's been the worst experience of my career uh, the last few years. But I th <laughs> the good news is I think we hit bottom uh, during the pandemic. And we would have folded were it not for the payroll protection program and for contributions from the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation, which we helped start right as the pandemic hit, and uh, because we saw the freight train coming. So we're making the transition. Good news is people care. You're here. And we've had a very good couple weeks since uh, we've started on this swing of the Midwest, Iowa, and now Denver, 
and uh, we had a really wealthy Chinese immigrant who made him came here, couldn't speak English at the age of 17, and now he's worth billions upon billions of dollars, and he heard about us, and he uh, sent me an email, and I was in my hotel room on this swing, on this tour, and I got this email at midnight in Detroit, and it said, I want to make sure your paper stays open for that pandemic. Here's a big, fat check. And I'm not kidding you. He, it was the size of our payroll protection loan. And uh, he bailed us out. <laughs> and so the American spirit is alive and well. And if we can replicate this, if we can get young people interested in startups in these news deserts, um, we did a show in Oxford, Ohio, home of Miami University, a town of 20 to 30,000 people. There's no newspaper there. The student newspaper's trying to cover the community. But they are. Those students are going out and doing it. And uh, eventually, that's going to turn into a real news publication. And so it is happening. But the real issue for us is managing this transition to digital because we have a, a legacy print publication that consumes all our resources and energies. And we need capital to make the digital transition because it's a lot more expensive than just, you know, setting up a web page. But there's good That's to a long answer to a very <laughs> simple question. That's okay. I appreciate the long answers. So it's good to hear that there is some hope. And I want to hear a little bit more about the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation that also appears in the film, sort of like the origins of that. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, as I said earlier, uh, actually in 2017, the year we won the Pulitzer, we lost $70,000. And uh, Detroit decided that uh, they weren't interested in, in community weeklies anymore for cooperative advertising support for car dealers. So we lost both our Ford and Chevy dealer full-page ads every week. Uh, they just pulled out. And now, more recently, uh, the state's largest grocer, Fairway, just pulled their preprints out of all these community newspapers. And, you know, for some papers, that's going to be a hundred dollars to $200,000 a year out of a, you know, million-dollar budget, 20% of their revenue or so. So we saw, that we saw it coming, and we, saw, we realized that with this precipitous drop in ad support, we had to make it up somewhere, and our audience isn't large enough, our potential audience isn't large enough in western Iowa, which is uh, sparsely populated and heavily rural. And so we realized we needed to get the tin cup out and adopt the PBS model uh, or the Guardian model. You know, the Guardian's doing it and the Seattle Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And so we just need philanthropy to p fill that hole and, and get us to a, a better situation. So we got together with a friends, all independent family-owned newspapers in Western Iowa in a five-county region, and formed the Western Iowa Journalism Foundation. And we got our IRS approval for nonprofit status in January of 2021. And so we've really just started raising funds, and we've raised about 300000 so far for five newspapers. La Prensa, which is a Spanish-language publication covering primarily meatpacking communities. The Carroll Times-Herald, the Jefferson Herald, and uh, the Coon Rapids Enterprise, and uh, the Storm Lake Times. Yeah, just to quickly add on that, you know, there's a uniqueness to the Storm Lake Times as well, I think, because of your voice in a certain way, because you're also somebody who writes about your struggles. 
There are a lot of, I think, people who will not write about the struggles. Newspapers, as most of you may be out here, if you're newspaper people, you are telling the stories of the community, but you don't many times tell your own story. And I think that you did, and we profiled the editorial that you wrote, which was to the community of saying, thank you for your support, we need your support. And you re your community has, in a certain way, responded. Yeah, our circulation is growing slightly. And uh, which is a huge victory in this environment because most newspapers are watching their circulation plummet. Certainly. And Jerry, kind of to go off of that, when did you first hear about the Storm Lake Times and decide to profile them? So I I'm, uh, I'm grew up on a pig farm in a small town of Buffalo Center, which is about 900 people, which may be an hour and a half away or so from Storm Lake. So I didn't know art, but I was an Iowan, and I have been living in New York for about 30 years. But, you know, one thing that art also says is, you know, we need immigrants because everyone is leaving town, and I'm that generation that actually left. My dad raised four kids on 160 acres of land, and I left, right, essentially. I moved to the East Coast. So then I saw in the spring of 2017 that the announcement from the Pulitzer was Small North Iowa Newspaper wins Pulitzer Prize. And I was at home. I actually read all of Art's articles that were online, and then within a couple days I called, and then I went out to visit my family in Iowa and snuck over for an afternoon and filmed with him. And there was a couple scenes actually that are still in the movie that were from that afternoon. So, you know, that was the origins, I guess, of how it got started, but then it was a slog to try to raise money. I mean, it's also in anybody who's here that's in documentary filmmaking know that it's a similar struggle, essentially, trying to make a film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it seems fairly relatable. Art, I bet it's a little weird to be on the other side, being the story, not writing the story. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, well, uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and it's good to be on the other side of the camera and realize what the people we subject ourselves to go through. And, you know, and so I'm watching... When we first got to see the movie, it was an uncut version, um, and you know the only thing I could was looking for was stupid things I said, and I didn't even know what the movie was about. I was just looking for dumb things I said, <laughs> and so you know it makes me more sensitive to people when I'm talking to them that I'm in their face, and you know the other part is I'm used to you know, staying out of the frame. I've worked with still photographers my whole career. And, uh, you know, the principal rule is stay one step behind the still guy. And now they want me in front of the lens. And so that, that was different. But uh, Jerry has a really, you know, uh, disarming style. So it's very comfortable for him to be around. He, he, it doesn't feel like he's in your face even when he is. But it really, like, there's a scene in the movie where I'm working, the, working a caucus room trying to interview people, and I didn't even know he was there. And he, again, was right on top of me, and I forgot he was even there. We mentioned already a little bit earlier about news deserts, and in the documentary, I think you call them a threat to democracy. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, your experience dealing with them, trying to cover those gaps where they might show up in the surrounding communities or whatnot, and you know, kind of explain to the audience why is this such a really big issue that now 65 million Americans are in news deserts. Interesting little story. There was a newspaper chain that bought up a bunch of rural papers in Iowa, and, and 
didn't know how to run them or what to do with them. So they actually gave us the Aurelia Star newspaper, which is about 15 miles from Storm Lake. They just gave it to us. And so we're running it just so people have a place to put their town notices, their club events, you know. And we try to cover the city council and the school board. There isn't really a lot of news that happens in Aurelia, but we still have 300 subscribers there. And they care about that four-page paper. And it's their connection to each other. And it doesn't even matter if some dimwits from Storm Lake or actually own it. They care about it. So that's one way that we've responded to news deserts is just by continuing to publish that newspaper. It breaks even for us. It might actually make more money than the Storm Lake Times just on legal notices. And there's been studies done, uh, one very prominent one from the University of Notre Dame that showed that wherever there are news deserts, taxes tend to rise, government spending rises, corruption increases, even crime increases. Because a community newspaper, you know, if you get busted for drunk driving, your name's going to be in the paper. And there's a certain amount of shaming that goes with that. And it's all part of what we do, you know. And uh, there are real consequences to not having a common conversation in a community. And those are some of them. Higher taxes, higher spending, less community connection, more crime. And to the extent that we can communicate facts to one another, uncomfortable as they may be, if we can stick to the facts, maybe we can get back to that common conversation that we lost somewhere along the way. And speaking of facts, I did want to ask you, one of the, I guess, other things that local news is having to deal with as news on every level, regional, national, is the rise of misinformation and disinformation. Is that something that you've had to contend with in your community? Well, yeah, primarily uh, by batting down lies on Facebook and trying to establish what the facts really are, whether it's a cafe closing and then all the rumors start on Facebook, you know, uh, of why the cafe is closing. And then we explain to them, here's why the cafe is closing, because, the, you know, the owner moved away. Uh, <laughs> you know, but these stories accumulate. And so, yeah, uh, we fight disinformation even on that micro level. Jerry, the issue of news is a national one. It's an international one. Did you ever think about widening the lens or only just focusing on the Storm Lake Times from the beginning? We knew that we wouldn't be able to do a film that was, that was statistics-based or that was, that was going to be about you know, large national issues. But we realized that after we were in Storm Lake for a while, that these issues that Art and his family were, were, were writing about were issues of, that the entire country was. So we wanted to make a real character-based film that included people that were actually doing the job, and they are doing the job, and they're doing a great job of what they do, and that were also, you know, ha that, were, that were tackling all the topics that, were, that we are as a country. So I never thought really that we would do a large scale, but what has happened is that because we made kind of a micro story with all these macro kind of universal topics that are touching everywhere, it's really resonated all over the country. So it's, it's, a, it's a small story with very large, I think, uh, implications. Did you know what was going on in the news industry before diving into this project? Uh, well, a little bit, just as a reader, just as a layperson, kind of. But then, you know, as, as things progressed, you really start seeing, 
you know, what was happening and like, you know, having, you know, daily conversations with Art and his family and then seeing, you know, what these guys were going through and the struggles, you know, that was like watching, watching Art basically go into a cafe and pull seven $1 bills out of an honor, like cup that people are paying for, you know, to make your monthlies is a big deal. I wanted to ask a bit about the pandemic because it is a big turning point in the film. It is a big turning point, obviously, in the newspaper business. I'd like to hear a bit from both of you how you each adapted on your day-to-day jobs when that first hit in March 2020. We were falling apart. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we were growing pretty despondent, uh, frankly. And uh, for a moment, not to rob you of contents of the film, but for a moment, John and I said, should we just shut her down, you know, just shut her down and walk away? Because it looked like we were going to lose money until the cows come home. And there was no end in sight. And of course, we had no idea when the pandemic would end, if ever, and it hasn't. So it was a very dark period for us. We saw our advertising essentially go to zero. And we, you know, lost so much money in 2020, I don't even want to know how much it was. And the first half of the year was just terrible. Then this summer, things started to pick up a little bit. Advertising started picking up, and we actually broke even the last three months. Without donations, we broke even. And uh, so, again, that I'm feeling a lot better, a lot more confident now, especially with my giant, you know, my friend from California, the computer genius. Uh, I'm feeling a lot better now, and uh, we're getting some interest from foundations to support us, mainly from California, I have to add, not from Iowa. So that was what the pandemic was like for us. It was, on a reporting side, it was very difficult dealing with Tyson, which is the main employer in Storm, like about 3,000 people work at uh, Tyson Pork and Turkey Plants, and... uh, they were, uh, as the, again, the movie illustrates, they were basically in charge of testing for the state for COVID, they, but they weren't testing in Storm Lake uh, because Storm Lake is their most profitable plant and they could not let that plant shut down, um, the pork plant. And so we, we really had to battle with the governor's office, with Tyson. Uh, we engaged with ProPublica on trying to get emails that were exchanged between local and state health officials and the American Meat Institute and Tyson about trying to get workers back onto the job before the quarantine periods were over. You know, somebody comes down with COVID, Tyson wanted them back on the job within a few days. And uh, stories like that. So it was, and you know, we're doing it all by email. And, uh, you know, Tom's sitting in the office by himself trying to track down these people and it, you know, and anybody who's worked in the newspaper or in public radio or whatever, I think, can identify with what we were going through. And just, and just he was only getting a, 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 you know basic responses from yeah, Tyson, Tyson corporate would say, later down yeah, in Arkansas. Tyson would say, "Gee, we're working really hard at safety, and we love our team members." You know, and uh, and then it turns out, you know, over twenty percent of the workforce uh, was infected with COVID, and we didn't even know it. And it turns out we were the hottest spot in the country for COVID for a two-week period. And uh, only to be eclipsed by Sioux City, which is another meatpacking town. And then Worthington, Minnesota, another meatpacking town. And then Sioux Falls, South Dakota, another meatpacking town. And now they still want to kick them out and send them all back to Mexico or Honduras, you know. 
and these people were risking their lives so we could have cheap pork. I can just, I mean, just quickly mention the, you know, like we didn't go through that, but we were trying to film that. So we were, you know, I was in, I think our, our editor was, was living in a small town up in the Hudson Valley and my partner was living in New York and I live in Brooklyn. So we were basically editing, you know, through the entire, we had basically almost finished the film all the way through the Caucasus. And then once COVID hit, we knew we had to open everything back up, go back and re-edit in order to bring the film to the, to, through COVID because we knew that's where all the issues were gonna hit, big ag, large business, climate change, Immigration, everything was hitting all at once. So we, um, I'm a cameraman, so I had all of the gear in my basement. And if you have seen the film, or if you do see the film, you'll see the entire end of that COVID section is all um, uh, interviews on my laptop. And then also um, we did a lot of macro shooting after the fact, just got the newspapers as they came. And then we let the newspaper physically take the, the, the role of a character in the film and the, and you're like, I'm, I'm watching this now and I'm seeing, you know, unbelievable headlines that are like telling us what's happening. You know, it went from literally zero cases to 200 cases to 555 cases to 700 cases to a thousand cases, literally in days. That's because there was no testing. So that ended up like feeding our story. And then I think we also had, um, you know, a great photographer by Dolores Cullen, who also was able to go out and shoot on the street for us. So I think that segment ends with focusing on the obituary section. And notice how you see story after story after story, where apparently there was no crisis. And then clearly there's evidence to the contrary. Yeah, that was that was our say their name moment, right? Which, which which we thought like, you know, everyone is denying, no, it's not so bad. And all of a sudden, really, you realize, you know, there are people dying that are, you know, that are working here and that are trying to give us all very inexpensive pork. And we just like did, I mean, we didn't do anything special. It was again, the whole film was very, very no nonsense. So we just had, you know, the newspaper tell the story, the newspaper, you know, obituary front page, obituary front page, obituary front page. And I've spoken to Dolores. Uh, uh, Art's wife recently, and one of the the daughters of the of the men that died is simply cannot get out from underneath her grief. I mean, there's like real stories, you know, and there's 750,000 of them, right, in our country alone. So it's you know, it was it was it was it was our we realized as well that as we were kind of wrapping up production that we had to reopen. I guess I mentioned this before, but like this was going to be a really important part, you know, of the story. Like, you know, the time when the community really has to rely on your newspaper to, to make sure that, they're, that you're informed. What do you see as some of the solutions? And this can be for both of you now that you, uh, Jerry, now that you've, you know, studied the Storm Lake Times and been following the industry for a bit there. What do you see are some of the bright spots and what do you hope to see more newspapers take on? Maybe possible solutions for the community to take up? I think that, you know, something that you said earlier is like, it's really... It's really the, like a group of people that come around and, and want to listen to this. It's like young kids who are inspired by, you know, I think you were inspired by Watergate. You know, people are inspired by, you know, news that changes the world. People are inspired by these sort of things that you really can have a real effect on. And so, you know, as a, I, I can't really comment on business models, I think, but I'm watching, you know, uh, on a national level and, you know, and, and seeing the way that, that different businesses are able to pivot into a future, whether it's the nonprofit or whether it's, you know, a different, a different mode altogether. I, I can't say, but I, I am hopeful because I see the youth and I see like our, 
our film right now is being requested by you know almost every J school around the country because they really want people to see or or, or students to see that you know this is what it takes if you want to be a journalist. And like the 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 letter to Tom, I think that uh, that we end the film with is about you know it's it's not about uh, uh, making a lot of money, it's, but you're going to be able to hopefully pay for some bills. But it really is about changing the world. So that's you know when you have that as your as your as your hope and your kind of beacon, then I think that can inspire still a lot of people. And real quick, I just wanted to clarify that uh, Tom is Art's son, who's one of the reporters at the paper. A number of family members also work at the paper. It's very much a, f a family affair where you get to see the documentary. I did wanted to ask you real quick, Art, um, that letter to your son is like a very poignant moment, and it is one that kind of closes the documentary. Do you have more pieces of advice for his generation of journalists coming up and hoping to make a career at this? People will always want information, accurate information. I think people hungered for the truth in the run-up to the, the last election. And I noticed there was a story in the New York Times today that circulation is up 335,000 for the quarter. That's really encouraging. People are paying attention. And they are realizing that freedom isn't free and that if you want the truth, there's a cost. I'd like to think down deep we're honest people searching for the truth. I'd like to think that. Uh, and the numbers in the early going appear to be bearing it out. And we deserved a lot of the circulation loss we endured by our business practices. And maybe we've learned our lesson now, too that it's not about serving the advertisers, and it's not about serving the shareholders, and it's not about serving the donors, it's about serving the readers. We also have the opportunity for a Q&A, uh, if audience has questions. So in addition to always trying to you know, speak the truth and combat the misinformation, I know uh, journalists also face a lot of threats lately and are, have to deal with a lot of hate in their communities. And I think that it's one thing if you don't know the journalists you're talking to on social media, but I assume in a community the size of Storm Lake and your entire family works for the paper, you probably know most of the people in your community. So I'm just curious what it's like being the media and being having it be a completely family affair in such a small community and how that goes with your neighbors. I can say that um, that I, as filming, you know, I went with Tom on several occasions to City Hall and he went and there are people that don't like the reporting of the Storm Lake Times. And so on several occasions, we didn't include this in the film, but but there were people who ran away from Tom that were sitting city council members because they were afraid of his reporting. So they would literally run away from him or they would figure out a way to get to the, to the stairs going, you know, leading out of, the, out of City Hall that they wouldn't have to have a confrontation. And then he could, you know, literally, that was like a mad moment for me and that we couldn't really figure out how to use that in the film. One of the great things about community journalism is it keeps you humble and it keeps you honest. And uh, as my brother John notes in the movie, when we make a mistake, we know about it immediately. And it's not like we set out to make mistakes. You know, as I tell Tom, if it doesn't make your gut wrench every time you have to run a correction, then you better get out of the business. Because you should have that devotion to accuracy.
And people coming up and giving us guff is it just goes with the territory, and it doesn't really it doesn't bother me that much personally. It bothers my wife tremendously. And there's a great movie, you know, in terms of you know people making threats on the press. There's a great movie, and I realize it's a it's a Hollywood version, uh, but it, it's called Dateline USA. And starring Humphrey Bogart as the managing editor of a great New York newspaper. And he's fighting the mob. And uh, the mob boss calls him at the final scene of the movie. The mob boss calls him uh, and threatens to kill him and, and bring him down. And Humphrey Bogart is in the press room on the phone, and the press is going to start, and the bells are ringing, and Bogart holds up the phone, and he says to the mob boss, you hear that? That's the sound of freedom. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if Humphrey Bogart can stand up to the mob, you know, I can stand up to some angry farmer. Do you have any ideas or thoughts, either of you guys have any ideas or thoughts about what comes next? I think some would argue we're seeing kind of the end of traditional print newspapers, the end of traditional linear broadcast news, not far behind newspapers. At the same time, we're seeing an explosion of social media and just an overflow of information. What comes next for traditional news and journalism outlets? Do you have any thoughts on on what comes next and what you guys may be doing to prepare for that? Yeah, what comes next is what's coming right now and that is this transition to digital and print is going away and uh, there's just no other way around it you know we're twice a week now I'm thinking real seriously about going to a once a week publication and then having a lot more beef online because it's just so expensive and it you know there's so much newspaper production that just takes away from reporting You know, when Tom's driving around the countryside for four hours twice a week delivering newspapers to distant post offices, despite these increasing postal rates, they won't deliver our paper on time. So we have to drive it all over the countryside to post offices. That's time that's not spent on reporting. And we're only seeing increases in digital circulation, not in print circulation. So print is going away. The ads already went away. So we have to rely on growing our audience through paid circulation, not free. And then we need capital from philanthropic sources to help us invest in that digital technology and know-how. Because I can set an ink stripe on a V15 Harris Press with the best of them, but I uh, have no interest in TikTok. So I need to get out of the way and let Tom take over. I mean, for me, I'm I'm still wondering, like, what that transit, you know, you have a 29-year-old son, and he's actually working in the industry trying to figure that out. I have a 24-year-old daughter who doesn't read, you know, she gets a digital version of the New York Times, and she probably just reads a handful of articles. I don't think she, she does not pour through news at all. So, like, in a certain way, that question, and I certainly don't have an answer, but how is it that you inspire the next generation to to civic engagement? How do you make them want to to be a participant in our democracy? Because I think that they don't feel that. Thank you all again for joining us. Thanks for coming. Thank you. CPR Arts and Culture Reporter Monica Castillo. 
Speaking in front of an audience at the Denver Film Festival with Jerry Reishas, co-director of the documentary Storm Lake, and with Art Cullen, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who co-owns the small-town newspaper The Storm Lake Times. The documentary is now streaming on Rocky Mountain PBS. More than 7,000 children in Pueblo County each received $100 over the summer. They earned it for reading. The money came from federal COVID-19 relief funds used to support a local program called Reading Pays. Here's KRCC's Shauna Lewis. That's from a video of elementary school kids who read 10 books, produced a report on one, and got 100 bucks. Children from neighborhoods around the county participated in reading pays. They picked books from their local libraries and then wrote, drew, or made videos about at least one. Like these from Olivia Gonzalez and Antonio Mondragon. So this book called The Pride, it tells about the story of Harvey Milk and the rainbow flag, and I really like it a lot. And this book, Splat the Cat, first day of school, I like it because he makes a lot of good friends, and making friends is really fun. Okay, today we are going to be making sugar cookies from uh, this baking book from the library because part of that reading thing. Okay, to start, we're going to preheat the oven to 300 degrees. Pueblo School District 60 literacy coach Abby Spillman says she's happy that monetary incentive got the kids reading more. If that's what it takes to start with and then they mature into realizing, hey, reading is just something that I need to be successful. The program was open to any Pueblo County resident under 18. Nick Potter of the Pueblo City County Library District managed it. He says the highest participation was among 8 to 10-year-olds. That's just like a, an age where kids are excited about reading, and reading is fun, and it's this, it's this whole new thing that you just learned how to do. But during the summer, organizers noticed a high rate of completion for children from more affluent neighborhoods, while youth from other areas often weren't completing the work. It was something Potter says they wanted to address. When school was coming back in session, that was really a perfect time for us to get them back into an environment where they had a lot of stability and they had an adult there that was able to help them to complete the program. Potter says by working with school staff like Spillman, they helped the kids pick books, read, and report on them in class. So they were able to radically boost the completion rate for children in some of the schools. For example, Columbian Elementary School in South Pueblo raised the number of students finishing the Reading Pays program from 15% up to 95% by the end of it. It is very significant, not just for our school, but for our town and for Pueblo. Colombian principal Jimmy Poole. Just that excitement and to get them thinking about things and experiences that they can do, right? The kids told him what they wanted to do with their $100. Maybe get a dog or go to the pumpkin patch or... Spend it on a boat and a hula hoop. Poole and Spillman say at first a lot of the children and their parents thought the whole program sounded too good to be true. So many times kids are promised so many things and it doesn't happen for them for whatever reason. And when they got it, oh my gosh, you want to talk about excitement. There it was. The kids talked about practical items they needed too, like school supplies. Pueblo Mayor Nick Gratisar came up with the idea of paying kids $100 for reading because he says reading is an essential life skill. And he says the money would likely stay in the community. The more than $700,000 cost of the program is split evenly between the city and the county. In Pueblo, I'm Shauna Lewis, KRCC News.
And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel, with special thanks to Nell London. Our theme was written and produced by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. We'd like to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters, and I'm at Heffel N. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.